Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Okay, friends, I must say that on a very personal note, I am super duper excited for today's episode. And if you could take a peep inside my closet, you would know... Exactly the reason why. I mean, I think some of you who are regular listeners have heard Cass tease me before that I never wear jeans, which isn't exactly true. I do sometimes wear jeans, and I certainly wear pants, but most often those pants are in the form of a jumpsuit. I am a huge, huge fan of jumpsuits. You are the jumpsuit queen, <laughs> I would argue. <laughs> what about you, Cass? I, I, I'm trying, I was racking my brain trying to think of ever seen you wear a jumpsuit, maybe once or so, but I would say that you gravitate more to wearing kind of like long skirts. Yeah. I mean, I think if you define a jumpsuit as like a one piece outfit that's like top and bottom combined, then I do own one 1960s fabulous orange pattern jumpsuit, but... <laughs> Those types of garments just don't lend themselves that well to my big booty. So um, (laughs) I do. I wear a lot of like A-line T-length skirts. Um, It's kind of my go-to staple. And jeans. (laughs) Yeah. And you, you also know how to rock like a statement belt too, I have to say. Yes. Yes. Love a good statement belt. <laughs> okay, so let's in our wardrobes aside. I have long found this social history of the jumpsuit so fascinating that when I was in grad school, I actually wrote a whole paper for my history of menswear class on the history of men's jumpsuits. So I was really over the moon to discover that our guest today is just as obsessed with jumpsuits and just as committed to them, if arguably not way more committed <laughs> to perpetuating the style in a professional context than I am. So uh, I'm, I'm so pleased that she's joining us. Yes. So today, Andrea Lauer joins us to discuss the history of, you guessed it, the jumpsuit. Andrea is a designer, inventor, and artist whose work is just as likely to be found on Broadway or the red carpet as it is to be born in the lab where she explores the intersection of fashion and technology. She is a guest lecturer at Princeton University, Rhode Island School of Design, and New York University. Andrea, welcome to Dressed. Andrea, welcome to the show. You and I met some months ago, maybe almost like a year ago-ish, when I happened to attend a bioplastics workshop that you were conducting, and that was uh, partially the initiative of past-dressed guest Tara St. James. She has like kind of like this educational component to her fashion brand, which is called uh, Resource, and her, her fashion brand is called Study New York. And Tara, when she first introduced us, was very quick to point out that you taught an entire course at RISD on jumpsuits. So, I mean, I don't I don't know if you picked up, but I was immediately smitten because anybody who actually knows me well knows that I always say I have never met a jumpsuit that I don't like. Like, I don't even know how many I have in my closet, honestly. It's my go-to. It's it's quite a few. So, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. And so what we're going to talk about today is it's a very specific topic in terms of teaching an entire course, which is 13 weeks, if I am correct. And just the fact that you do teach this course, which is so specific for that many weeks, it it promises to like open up like the depth of this topic, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your class from uniform to multiform and how it came to be? Sure. Um, I mean, it came to be like most very unusual impromptu things do, <laughs> which is over a glass of wine. I was having a conversation with um, a colleague, Peter Yerden, who was then serving as the interim um, head of ID at RISD and had, had been sort of following my career 
and knew that I had been working in new materials, as you mentioned, bioplastics. I've been working a lot with conductive threads, um, wearable electronics, as well as being a costume fashion designer. And he said, look, we really have a shortage of soft good classes. Um, I would love for you to teach something had you ever considered that. And I, you know, I sat there and I thought, sure. And I think what came out of my mouth next was just as surprising to him as it was to me, which was, how about a class about jumpsuits? And he said, <laughs> okay, go on. Um, and I realized that a lot of my work of the past five years had kept leading up to this one topic. And there was this umbrella and the umbrella had been this idea of the jumpsuit or an item or a garment of progress. And I had watched it come out in many different types of my work. And I thought, well, okay, let's do a class called, you know, the, the, about the history of the jumpsuit from uniform to multiform. And let's really decide and discuss about what that is in terms of history, its relevance to society, and what it means for our future. Yeah. It seems so simple, like when you just say, oh, the history of the jumpsuit, but it's, it is so much more than that. So one of the things that I thought was fascinating that you just said, you talked specifically about the history of the jumpsuit, and you pinpoint the quote-unquote inception of the jumpsuit to the year 1919. And this is, of course, after the end of World War I. So what was it that happened in 1919 that brought about this term jumpsuit? And also, how do you define jumpsuit within your course? Right. Well, I think that for me, the inception of the jumpsuit is very much hand in hand with the futurist movement. I really experience fashion through um, historical and societal progressive movements. And I think that although people were using this garment to literally quote unquote jump or parachute out of planes, what they were also doing was searching for a future that didn't exist yet. They were actually taking a leap into the future to carve out what would be the next generation. And that was very idealistic thinking. And it had a lot to do with utilitarianism and how we see the world and approach it as individuals, but then come together as a collective consciousness. And it was the excitement of that in which I sort of call the birth of the jumpsuit for me, which was all about progress. Mm-hmm. And and also like uh, you mentioned parachuting, but that was an entirely new thing at the time in 1919, right? Right. In fact, they even had a suit called the Sidcott suit, um, which was from 1917, which was actually one of the first flight suits and one of the first suits to have thought to have been used for parachuting. So it precedes 1919. Yeah. So it's like always, when you think about the jumpsuit, uh, uh, there's always this connection between like technology, progress, and the future. And, And that I still think is embedded in its DNA today, very much so. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, you know, you, you asked me thinking about the jumpsuit and like thinking about how I actually define it myself is I think of it as, yes, it's a one piece garment, but it's a one piece garment that defies boundaries of gender, expect- expectations of labor, and it sort of paves the way for advancement. Mm-hmm. So it's really this multifaceted garment that has um, become a signifier for progress. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, And and one thing that I think is super interesting is at this time when it kind of came out during the early 20th century, in terms of silhouette, the fact that it was a one-piece garment wasn't exactly novel, right? Because for decades prior, men had been wearing what were called combinations, which were these kind of like one-piece knit garments that were worn as underwear. So it wasn't necessarily the one-pieceness of it that made it unique. You know, laborers had also long worn coveralls as workwear. But but what really sets a jumpsuit apart as being this unique entity at this time is the fact 
that it is connected to what we just talked about in terms of like the progress and technology, you know, its connection to human flight. So I'm hoping you might comment um, before we go a little bit deeper in terms of like these early jumpsuits being worn as military uniforms and, and specifically uniforms because uniformity becomes a very central theme as I think we're going to like talk about as we go further. Right. Well, I think in terms of the military, you know, there was this idea to bring people together and have them look alike to create a sense of camaraderie, to create a collective idea that we would work together and we were not necessarily individuals, but as a group and as a whole, we would overcome these things that were thrown at us, especially in the face of war. And I feel like the military really used the uniform in a way of its its own sort of fashion propaganda. Of course. (laughs) That it became a blank canvas in which when the moment you stepped into it, you became a part of this team instead of the individual. And that team made you stronger. So we're talking about flight. But also at this, around the same time, we're seeing automobiles becoming increasingly common in, in everyday life. And also at the same time, we start seeing this very interesting discourse amongst very avant-garde thinkers of the time who are talking about the nature of mechanical speed and human dynamic movement through space. So um, among some of these thinkers, as you have already referenced, were the Italian futurists and also the Russian constructivists. Would you give us just a little snippet, like a little soundbite comment on these artistic movements and their connections to clothing? Like how did they think about clothing? Because they were very specific on this point. You know, both futurism and um, Russian constructivist theory had very specific takes on the body, not necessarily just on fashion. They couldn't separate the two. Well, who can, right? (laughs) (laughs) They really saw a body as fashion and that the human body was a moving vessel, that it was about action. And this required efficiency and a streamlined take on the way things actually fit and were designed. And it's this sort of simplicity that brings us to um, a neutrality that then was very much um, appreciated by both of these two movements and found it as a way to sort of project future possibility onto. Mm-hmm. And, and one of perhaps the most notable practitioners within the Italian futurist movement was, of course, Ernesto Micheles, a.k.a. Teot. And we can't have a discussion on jumpsuits without talking about Teot. He introduced the tuta in 1919. So what was a tuta and what was its aim in this broader, like, conversation of his artistic practice? Talking about Thayat and talking about his pseudonym, which of course is a palindrome, which is actually also a reflection of the actual shape of the tuta, which is symmetrical. What he was really after is, and he actually called it, quote, the most innovative futuristic garment ever produced in the history of Italian fashion. And for him, he was really looking at this progressive way of dressing that was not about gender, but was about actual action and movement and a desire for speed and progress. And I think the my most favorite thing about him and the tuta in 1919, and this is also why I often reference this as the inception of the jumpsuit for me, is that this is really the first time we've seen open source fashion because he actually published his entire pattern in a newspaper. It is so cool. Revolutionizes the way (laughs) Think about how we get pressed. So here we are, 1919, open source fashion for the masses. He set out to create this as an objective and he very much accomplished it by 
putting it out into a way that anyone could get their hands on it. And indeed, he wanted this to become the new trend. And with varying success, had some. It did, in a way, become the modicum of, of the time, but not necessarily for all classes. It ended up being a little bit more popular, actually, amongst the higher ranking class. And, you know, you have to think of, like, why is that? I, I'm not I'm not sure, except that perhaps it was a novelty. And there's this idea that we all cling to things that are new and we all want the next best thing. And the people who are most connected to technology are most closely connected to the conversation with the consumer, right? So maybe that's why that happened. But again, just going back to like open source fashion, that in a way just blows my mind entirely. Yeah. So he basically created this jumpsuit, like wrote a bit about it, and then published it in the newspaper with the pattern for free. For free. For free. For everyone. When I was prepping to talk to you, I I was reminded like a bit about the fact that it was actually rather popular at the time, which is a little bit surprising because this is a very radical garment, right? I mean, we talk on Dressed all the time about how women wearing pants was like still raising eyebrows in the 1960s. We're talking 1919. And in Italy, amongst kind of like some of the artistic forward-thinking classes, people were actually wearing the jumpsuit, his, his, his tuta. Why do you think that was? You know, at the end of the war, people were really ripe for change. They were really craving a revolution. And I think the tuta signified that in its simplicity and its the ability to not think and throw on one piece in its expression of um, neutrality. I think that these were all things that after so much bloodshed and so much back and forth of terror going on during World War I, that this was sort of a welcome blank slate. And it really changed the paradigm of the way we think and dress. Yeah. And Teot was not the only artist, like practicing artist, who was kind of thinking about these same things, waiting about in these same waters. We also have the Russian constructivist Alexander Vonchenko. He was also working under this umbrella of productivist theory. And that, in turn, cannot be separated from Soviet ideologies at play. So... Could you speak a little bit about this in, in terms of like the utilitarian aspect of the jumpsuit that both of these individuals were kind of like playing with? Well, I think both individuals are really emphasizing the practical role of the jumpsuit and also the idea of suppressing sexual difference, that the um, a baseline in which we are all neutral and we are all the same. And that that was a very forward-thinking way outside of the class system that had formed so prevalently after the war. And there was no real regard for ascetic preference during this time, especially for Rodchenko. So he was really looking at something that had a, a very clean form. And what I love about both of these these people is that they're they weren't just designers or into fashion or into textiles they were painters they were sculptors they were the original polymaths so you know speaking of gender like you know in the syllabus for your course you say that quote in world war ii the jumpsuit became the symbol of women's freedom from conventional roles occupied by centuries so How so? And I'm hoping we can talk a little bit more here about the jumpsuit in terms of the gendering and also the ungendering of garments. Well, it's interesting, though. Vera Maxwell, who was a designer who first came up with this jumpsuit or work suit slash coverall that women were wearing during World War II that we now think of as the iconic Rosie the Riveter. And this was an opportunity for women to sort of trade in their skirts put on a onesie pantsuit and get to work. And it was important because it was about safety. 
but it was also about freedom of movement. And then it became about freedom of expression and then the freedom to learn and have the ability to do something you may not normally be able to do or thought capable of. And so it really empowered an entire generation of women to think outside the box of their normal roles and start to really challenge the notion of what was possible. And once again, this is all about technology. This is all about progress and how things are moving forward. And here we are, women are at the forefront, guiding, leading the way. And when the war was over, women didn't necessarily want to go home and return to their skirts. They were ready to continue on leading the way, making new pathways, making um, new roles for themselves, creating new jobs. You gave them the power and then the power was not ready to be relinquished. It was only encouraged to become stronger and the fire was born. Yeah. And it was kind of like ripped back out of their hands. <laughs> um, so I was, I was super duper curious to see when in the fashion press we first see this term, quote unquote, jumpsuit appear. And I was surprised that it wasn't until 1955 I did a whole search. Um, the first reference to jumpsuit appeared in 1955 in Women's Wear Daily in an advertisement. So obviously they had been being produced, right? This was an advertisement. They are being sold. They are being retailed. Um, and then by 1957, 1958, we start to see women's jumpsuits promoted as sportswear quite frequently. But what is it about this specific time period where it made this leap, right, from the 1940s in terms of Rosie the Riveters as being a utilitarian garment to being in the fashion sphere in the 1950s? What what was that moment? It's interesting. I, I always, when I think about that, sometimes I think that this was some sort of compromise, really. <laughs> it was sort of saying, we want you at home. But we know that neither one of those is going to be okay just as it is. So why don't, we're going to give you some leisure wear. <laughs> and so there became this idea of sportswear slash leisure wear for women in the late 50s. But as you look at it, it's actually incredibly form-fitting and actually fetishizes the body quite a bit. And so it did the opposite of what the Rosie the Riveter suit was doing before. And it was in a way kind of, introducing the jumpsuit as a new category of the feminine form. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it started to really actually become fetishized the female body. Yeah. Because like, if you think about it, obviously dresses would probably constitute the majority of a woman's everyday wardrobe. But when, when you look at some of these jumpsuits from the 1950s, they are slim and fit and you can see a lady's hips, you can see her booty, like, and that was not something that you saw in the dress of every day. Yeah, definitely gave way to Barbarella, right? <laughs> Which, by the way, is one of my all-time favorite movies. So speaking of Barbarella and media and Hollywood, and entertainment. You know, one could argue that the popularity of jumpsuits in the 21st century definitely owes, in part, to their adoption by music icons. Do you have any particularly favorite examples of jumpsuits worn by, by musicians? And why do you think that musicians in particular have kind of gravitated towards wearing jumpsuits over the years? I think musicians have always been on the side of the rebellion. They've always been people who are out seeking to communicate in a way that is new and vital with a voice that hasn't been heard before. And so I think it's only natural that they would sort of look to the common workers uniform to sort of unify us all. I think that that's there's one example in that. And I also think that they were looking at it to actually challenge gender. There are actually people like David Bowie who were wearing very tight jumpsuits that you might see on a female. 
And he was taking his gender and pushing it more into the female world by wearing a jumpsuit. Whereas you would have someone else like Pete Townsend from The Who, who's wearing like a white boiler suit at a concert and, you know, doing his quintessential jump. And you think like that's he's talking about class. Mm -hmm. And so you have this combination of sort of fantasy and social movement combined together to create a whole brand new vocabulary around the body and how it's seen, used, and what it means to be male and female and what those freedoms of expressions are. Yeah. And and honestly, like I have to say, that's one of the things that I love so much about all of my jumpsuits that are in my closet. Like I still feel that every single time I put one on. It's like this kind of like leveling of the playing field in all aspects. Does that make any sense? It does. I think jumpsuits are suits of power Mm -hmm. and they very much represent an ungendered look at the body, right? Even though you may feel incredibly feminine or you may feel incredibly masculine. I mean, one of my favorite jumpsuits is in the form of what looks like a double-breasted trench coat. I feel incredibly masculine in it, but I feel so powerful. And so what it is, is it's really getting to the part of myself that is feeling what kind of power I want to show that day. And it's actually giving me the freedom to go in between genders. Yeah. And that kind of power is really can't be found in a whole lot of other garments, I don't think. And it's just like you put it on and it's like you suit up for the world. You don't know what's next. Yeah. You know, much like the futurist thought they were looking for progress. They were looking for the, the future. What's next? I put on my jumpsuit, I think what's next? And therein lies the power. Yeah. And also like there's an aspect of, I don't have to think about it too hard, right? Like it's done. This is handled. (laughs) Um, I'd like to turn our attention to your own work with jumpsuits, um, which is very much in keeping with this kind of like conversation that we've been having about both like the utilitarian and also the utopian and also fashion aspects that are embedded into this garment. Can you tell us first a little bit about your work with MIT and also Nova? Yeah, my work with MIT started out because I became a director's fellow in 2017, which connected people outside of the lab with people in the lab so that we would collaborate in unusual ways and start different and new types of social conversations. And as it would happen, they were doing their first zero gravity flight, um, the MIT space initiative was. And I got to talking, um, once again, this is over a wine conversation. Because <laughs> all good ideas happen over a glass of wine. But and there was a conversation about um, the zero gravity flight and doing art inside the zero gravity flight. And I asked simply to um, this woman I just met named Jing Lu, I said, well, what are you wearing? And she looked at me and she said, well, a, a flight suit. And then her eyes got really big and she said, hang on. And she ran away and she came back and she came back with this picture that was very much um, a cartoon anime drawing of a friend that a friend had done for her, of her sort of tethered to the wall in space, flying, just what her friend had sort of conjured for her. Um, as you might look like this. And so it, it looked a little bit like Sailor Moon meets something from a land of the lost. And I thought, oh, that's so fascinating because if I was thinking about flight suits in the future of flight suits, I would want to really highlight the idea that here you are, you're a female. And this had already, the anime aspect had very much pronounced the female body lines, right? But I thought like, maybe there's a way to do it to honor history. And because I work as a costume designer, I'm often looking to threads and textiles to tell us a story that has come before. And I sort of looked at her and I said, you know what? I have an idea. I'd love to collaborate with you on what you wear. And so this collaboration just kind of started. And out of it, we birthed this flight suit that was a combination of something that felt very fashion forward 
a nod to the flight suit in its workwear systems of specific pockets and different types of tailoring techniques. And I combined it with the look of Harriet Quimby's first flight suit that she wore that had a slight jod per look. So what I was trying to do was to take something old, blend it with something new. And then the third thing I really wanted to do was in the storytelling of the material. So contacted 3M, 3M who makes this reflective material and they make a reflective spandex actually. So you can move very freely, which is ideal for a zero gravity flight. And the reason why I wanted to use this is because I knew that if you took a picture with a flash, the surroundings would go dark. So even though you weren't actually in deep space, you're just in this zero gravity flight, you could imagine that you were in deep space. So it was another element of storytelling that I really wanted to examine and explore. So the way we can play with textiles and new materiality and how that can create an, an additional layer to what we're actually doing and saying with our art. Yeah. And I feel like I would say that like the materiality of how jumpsuits, what they have been constructed from ha- is like a very embedded discourse within the garment, right? So when you're talking about like kind of like the utopian ideologies of, you know, the constructivists and the futurists, this is again about leveling that playing field. So like the, the textiles that were being used this was not about embellishment. It was not about ornamentation. It was it was about something being something very practical. But like what you're saying, I mean, like it, what these suits are made of has always been like, I would argue maybe like 30% of the design ideology, right? It, it's part and parcel to the whole concept. Oh, sure. I mean, you look at different types of, you know, we talk about jumpsuits, but they're also boiler suits onesies, side cuts, coveralls, you know, these are all different types of a similar form. And oftentimes what separates that form is actually the textile they're made out of. That's what I was trying to get at. Thank you. (laughs) Whether it's a ripstop nylon or it's a woven wool because people needed to stay warm inside the cockpit. Maybe it's a cotton polyester because of durability and Here I was looking at the materiality of this zero gravity flight, and I knew that what it had to do was to be flexible. So I needed to think about the action. Once again, we keep coming back to the action of the suit. And I also wanted to have an idea about reflecting upon our own sense of what's possible, right? So I took that literally and made it out of a reflective fabric. And that was just for me part of a storytelling element that I could infuse that hadn't been done before on a flight suit. That was just my way of giving a sort of a nod to the sort of the deep lineage of imagination of what could be if we could be in space. Yeah. Wow. And speaking of space, that leads me right into my next question that I want to ask you about. I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the new SpaceX suits that were used in the last mission in January 2020. And also the new spacesuits, which will be used in the upcoming Artemis missions. Well, it was actually designed by a costume designer. I find that really exciting because costume designers really, I feel, understand the body. They have to work very closely with actors. They're in constant collaboration and communication with the person that is in the clothing. And so clothes aren't just being put on a person. The clothes are actually being made and formed for the person. And that was a really big part of this mission was the whole idea of bespoke, right? So they essentially are these bespoke suits made specifically for these two astronauts. And that I find exciting. What I wish for is that they would have been more related to the human body and less related to the ship itself. Because the design concept was that they actually were a suit that belongs to a seat, right? And so the architecture of it was very mechanical. And I long to always see the human body as much as I can. 
And although, of course, there are so many limitations because it has to perform so many different functions and there's often so many restraints put on what can be used and what can't be used, I'd like to imagine commercial space travel is possible for the individual, not just for the superhero. And I think in the end, the message was that it was for the superhero. Right. Yep. You're right. You're right. I mean, one of my very best friends, uh, Leslie, shout out Leslie. She's a professor of choreography at Tulane. She's obsessed with all things space travel. And she keeps sending me like every single update about like the new flight suits. But that's so fascinating. I did not know that the person that had designed them was a costume designer. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. In fact, I think he was the costume designer who had done Black Panther and a couple of other sort of Marvel comics. Oh, wow. So you can understand that Elon Musk definitely went to the right He knew. The theatricality of it. Yeah, he went after the theatricality. Yeah, it's extremely important. And the storytelling was important. I think one thing that they talked about in the inception of the design, which I do love, was that no one looks better than anything else than a tuxedo, right? And so that for them, this is what they had imagined. This was the sort of tuxedo of space travel. And that is a very cool idea. <laughs> oh, okay. I, like my brain automatically went to like, when is James Bond going to be in space next? Right. We're going to have to figure that one out. And then you start getting to the new Artemis suits. You know, you look at them and there's a distinct difference between the SpaceX suits and the upcoming Artemis suits, and that one is inside the environment is controlled. So SpaceX is inside its own unit. And then the Artemis is actually for being outside in the environment. So it has to be by nature, the entire ask is different. It's, it's designing for the portable environment instead of for the body. Um, so it's, its restraints are much more specific. It requires a lot more information and detail around atmospheric pressure and what it's like in different altitudes and how we sort of experience a world that is other. And so, of course, they're more clunky. They look a little bit more like the way that I like look at Buzz Lightyear, the backpack and, you know, I love about the suit is that because of wearable technology and new materials, they were able to do some really interesting designs around joints to enable more flexibility, more movement. I think that's really exciting. I think the missed opportunity on this one for me is that they're red, white, and blue. And although as much as I can say that I love my country, I would like to think that we can think about space as not belonging to any one nation. And it ends up looking like the Olympic athlete version of a spacesuit as opposed to a spacesuit for all mankind. So I, in my heart of hearts, I wish we would go back to the sort of 1959 silver mercury suit and call it done. But that's just my wish. That's my own personal design preference. Yeah, well, and also like within the 100-year history of jumpsuits, politics has always been embedded within it. Like you have a whole different project called Brick by Brick. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Brick by Brick started in 2016 with its sort of brainchild, Sarah Sandman, who is my co-director and colleague. And she was really wanting to have a response to Trump running for president and had come up with a couple of ideas. And at one point had thought, you know, she really wanted to build a human wall. And long story short, um, jumpsuits came to mind for her. And Someone said to her, we, were, we happened to be in the same studio building. And someone said, oh, you're on the third floor. Do you know Andrea? She's on the seventh. She's a jumpsuit designer. And she said, no. And then someone mentioned the need. Do you know Sarah Sandman? She does um, work around showing how um, different types of design can. And she uses graphics 
you know, this time she's using clothing. A graphic designer and a costume designer get together brick by brick. And it was our way of using the jumpsuit as a canvas of expression to um, assert ourselves against Trump in misogyny by standing in um, wall formation and and standing in silence as a political protest. And these suits were printed uh, with a brick print and then the patches on them were all sayings that Trump had said about women that um, were really incredibly inflammatory. And we took these, we put them on our bodies, we asserted our own power and we reclaimed them and stood in solidarity together against him. And what this ended up becoming is initially it was just for women. We did this just for women, even though this is in a jumpsuit, which is an ungendered clothing item. It wasn't until after the election that we said, this is a bigger problem than we really know how to handle. And it was then that it became very clear that man, woman, child, dog, could be a part of it. And we've had all of the above, that it was about the unit, you know, the unity of people coming together. And the jumpsuit really helped unify all of us collectively um, and have us have sort of a collective protest that we can then sort of look out into the community and the community would feel like they could then identify with us and the community would then join us. We would bring suits and sometimes people would put suits on that we'd never met before. And before we knew it, we had a movement. And so this was very exciting that a jumpsuit, a garment that is a one piece item can literally become a canvas of expression for political protest and for power and empowerment of the body. And that it's taken this form and now is a, a symbol of resistance and continues to have its own interactions with different political movements as we move forward. We were constantly looking for new ways to sort of show up, um, but that's what we started to do. We wanted to show up. The jumpsuit was the way to do it and it was a way to make our own human wall. Yeah, and and it is that lineage the history, the symbolism, the meaning that has been inherent to this garment for over 100 years. So thank you for continuing that artistic practice. Yeah, thank you. Will you tell us a little bit about the suit that you made for Nova as well? Yeah, that was an excellent project that I did with PBS and astrophysicist Jana Levin, who I am in constant collaboration with under the Pioneer Works, which is in Red Hook. We've been collaborating for some time a lot about the way we think about science and the takeaway and how it's interpreted to people of all walks of life so that you could be able to go into a situation learn about string theory, walk out and actually understand in layman's terms what it means or take it to a higher level and understand it at, you know, an, an absolute scientific level. These are conversations we've been having a long time. And throughout our collaboration of doing things for Pioneer Works, it came up that she was going to be the host of NOVA um, for a series she did on black holes. And the significance of this actually is that she's the first female host of Nova ever. And that to me was very appealing. And of course they wanted her to do a spacewalk as you would specifically into perhaps floating into a black hole. And so of course this was all green screen, very theatrical, a lot about the storytelling. But it was interesting to sort of get into a room full of producers and creators and convince them that this was not just the white astronaut suit that she needed to put on, that we needed to go rent from a movie house, that this was something that once again, go back to the idea of bespoke, the bespoke suits, the SpaceX, that this was very much about Jana Levin, the female, the astrophysicist that was going and making this choice. So what we wanted to do was we kind of gave a nod to the Deva Newman suit, from MIT, which was one of the, a spacesuit that was created several years ago that had a very female form. We wanted to sort of combine it with that and give it a little bit of a sartorial sci-fi nod 
and together bring those two worlds together to create something that could both tell the story, but also very much be um, sort of blaze the trail for women in space. And that the idea that the female form belongs in space and that we can see it and we can acknowledge it. And that was a very important part of the message. And it was, I was thrilled that PBS backed it up. And they were very, they were very um, supportive of that way of thinking. That's amazing. I love that story so much. <laughs> you have a jumpsuit brand risen division. And Andrea, I love your motto. It's in jumpsuits we trust, which I am a firm believer in. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Risen Division? I created Risen Division because I saw that there was a gap in the market between workwear and fashion wear jumpsuits. And I wanted something utilitarian to go from day to night, much like the futurists did. And I was inspired by history. So as a costume designer, I've always looked at patterns and clothes that have come before, worn by specific people. And so I created a line that's actually based around different people in history. So I have three different styles right now. For example, I have the wolf, which was based off of Virginia Woolf. I actually pulled a pattern from one of her riding jackets. So the, both the collar and the sleeve technique is indicative of her time period. And or the Quimby, in which case I have the aviator style collar. Or most recently, which gets released in the fall, the Wild, which is a combination of like if Oscar Wilde wearing a smoking jacket that was a jumpsuit, this would have been it, right? So these are all the things that are part of the storytelling of the jumpsuit that I'm trying to embrace and to bring forward part of the history that so it doesn't get lost, that we understand that the jumpsuit has a, a very long history based in people's stories. Dress listeners, if you would like to get your hands on one of Andrea's jumpsuits, you can do so. Where can people find you and also Risen Division? Well, I um, have everything made sustainably here in Brooklyn, actually. And my studio is in Gowanus, so you can always visit me there. But you can find me online. Um, at Risen Division or on Instagram. The exciting thing is this fall, I'll actually be in a brick and mortar at this place called The Canvas, which is in Williamsburg. And they are really sort of paving the way of new ways of retail experiences by supporting ethical fashion brands and really looking at the United Nations Code of Ethics uh, and Development Goals around sustainability and choosing brands that represent that. So not only are you going to get to go in and feel good about supporting the work that's in there, you're also going to get a very unique blend of different artists, over 100 different designers um, that are all bringing their work together so that you just purchased. People are free to come and do fittings in my studio. I also do bespoke orders. And I would just say that your whole closet should be filled with jumpsuits. It is the staple of the future. <laughs> and in, in, in 1919, which is, of course, you know, we think about this first huge pandemic. And now we're here we are in this other pandemic. I would hypothesize that maybe jumpsuits once again should appear as a pattern in a newspaper and just see what happens. You can do it. You can make this happen. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This was such a delight. I mean, if I could talk about jumpsuits all day, every day I would. And um, I think that you're going to see me quite soon for a custom jumpsuit uh, in your studio. Thank you, April. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. April, I'm so glad that the two of you mentioned Teot in this episode. Fun fact, listeners, aside from his work with the Tuta, which if I'm correct, was a project that he was working on with his brother around the same time, he was also collaborating with Madeline Vionnet, and he designed a lot of her graphics, illustrated many of her plates that appear in fashion publications. April, I know you and I both love all of his illustrations for her in Gazette de Bon Ton, mm -hmm. and he was even working as an assistant designer with her during the 1920s. So he's really, really a fascinating figure. 
Yeah, I've always kind of thought that maybe if I was going to have one of those like fantasy dinner parties where you could invite anyone dead or alive that that he might be one of them. And oh, there's one other thing that I want to talk about before we sign off because I find them so charming. Some of you may remember a couple of years ago, there were more than a few memes going around about women wearing jumpsuits like now in contemporary times. And then what happens when you need to use a public restroom, you know, where you go into the bathroom (laughs) feeling super cute and flirty and sporty. And then you realize you have to take your jumpsuit off and that perhaps you're mostly naked sitting there, especially if you didn't wear a bra that day. And it has to touch the floor. Yeah. It's like, how do you handle all these things? (laughs) It's a very strange, strange feeling. And if this has ever happened to you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But apparently at this time when kind of jumpsuits were rising in popularity, this was such a ubiquitous experience that women were having that Bustle.com did this whole article, which was entitled The Eight Struggles of Peeing While Wearing a Jumpsuit. (laughs) So listeners, if you may indulge me for just a moment, I would like to read the eight struggles to you. We have the first one, which is how do I get this off anxiety, right? Then we have, this reminds me of swim team realization, which I was never on swim team, so I didn't really get this one. But I think what this is about is, can I just pull the jumpsuit to the side without taking it off? Or taking off your entire swimsuit and being naked to pee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Number three is, I will find a way out without damaging this resolve. Number four, I am the great Houdini relief. (laughs) Number five, I hope no one can see me panic. Number six, the free boobin seemed like such a good idea regret. Number seven, the anything but Zen yoga class participation, um, aka trying to put your jumpsuit back on in a very small bathroom stall. And number eight, I am cool as a onesie wearing cucumber strut which is when you leave the bathroom. So, I mean, just holler if you've been there, ladies and gents, because we know that you gents wear jumpsuits too. Not to mention that just, you know, peeing in a stall in America is already like this very public experience and you can like often (laughs) see people through those little slits, you know? So I guess if you're like butt ass naked um, trying to pee, that just like adds on top of it. I mean, you go to places in like Japan, Italy, and it's like, floor to ceiling toilets, like very private. And then America, it's so, sorry. That's not. I totally digress, but that is totally one of my pet peeves. Or or what if even you are in there all by yourself? Like it is a single user restroom. Like what if the door didn't lock? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so many issues. Okay, well on that (laughs) note, dress listeners, I think that does it for us. May you consider the surprising complexities of the jumpsuit, which is hopefully residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions or catch you up to speed on the latest in fashion and fashion studies. And if you'd like to write to us with a future fashion history mystery question, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey P. Grimm and Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.